welcome back to the product experience. How's things with you, Randy? Great. I've been rapidly prototyping all week, thanks to last week's guest. <gasps> Ooh, but how are you going to make sure your business grows fast and maximize its value? Um, uh, Don't worry, I've got you covered with today's guest. Ah, thank you. That's right. We're talking to Ashley Smith today about product-led growth. I'm excited. She's our first guest to properly use a y'all. <laughs> that is right. But that's not why we're talking to her. Ashley is venture partner at OpenView and previously led marketing and growth operation at GitLab, GitHub, and Twilio, amongst others. That sounds ace. Why don't we just get started? Hi, Ashley Smith. Welcome to the Product Experience Podcast. It's really great to have you. Yeah, it's super awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. So your venture partner at OpenView, tell us a bit about how you ended up in this role and kind of what it's all about. Yeah, I, I don't actually come from a venture uh, background, as is happening a lot in the venture world. Operators and executives and founders are kind of moving into the investment space, which is exactly what I've done. So yeah, so, so it's not my background, but I'm doing it now. I've been doing venture for about four months now, and I absolutely love it. So tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up in the role that you're in. Yeah, sure. So by degree, I'm an engineer. I found out that I don't like being the person building the thing. I prefer to be the person on the the -the go-to-market side. So the one getting the excitement for the product, uh, the one going and talking to the customers all the time. Uh, I'm naturally an introvert, but I do like talking to customers, (laughs) which works out (laughs) in venture because now I like talking to founders. Um, so Twilio was a company I joined in 2000, I believe 10, they were about 20 people at the time, Twilio obviously doing super well, have IPO'd their, their valuation now is huge. Like they've just done an incredible company and it was built in a great way, but I was basically hired there to do the things no one else wanted to do. <laughs> so <laughs> answer the phones, figure out how to do marketing emails. Let's figure out, you know, what are these leads and where are they going? Um, let's launch a product via the email. Like, what are all these things that you do when you're thinking about go to market? I had no idea what I was doing. However, we were all smart people and we kind of figured it out, right? Like there were nights I would spend up writing website copy, uh, for a launch, like just really anything, (laughs) anything that needed to get done. That entire team that early was, was the type of people to just get things done, which was awesome. Turned that into about two years later, went and became head of marketing at a company called Parse. Parse, we were about 10 people. We were a mobile app platform that Facebook actually acquired and then subsequently killed. (laughs) There's a lot of good content about that conversation on the internet somewhere. Um, But yeah, so there I was leading all go-to-market. We were a very small team. Developers loved us. And they loved us because we worked so hard to make a really great product. And we really listened to our community and took a lot of product feedback and, and launched some really cool stuff. And I was at Facebook for a bit in the platform team, still working on Parse. Did that for, I think, a year and a half. So long enough to, to realize I don't like working in big companies. <laughs> I'm definitely a startup person. After that, so GitLab, uh, Ilya Sukar, who's the CEO of Parse, uh, invested in GitLab early on and introduced me to Sid, the, the CEO there. And I came in as CMO at GitLab when there were about 10 people and, and scaled the company and team to about 150 Obviously, GitLab is doing super well. Like They've publicly said they plan to IPO next year. I'm very excited about that journey. Um, they're just doing product really well. Like We would, you know, every every single month on the 22nd, you ship something, and you ship something really good. So 
for a product perspective, I love that cadence. Parlay that into, I was planning on actually going into venture when I left there. And uh, in doing that, I got introduced to the, the GitHub founder and uh, joined there as the head of marketing. I was one of the five executives leading the company um, 18 months into that Microsoft acquisition that, that happened, I guess now, almost a year ago. So that's been my journey. Did some angel investing, was advising about 20 companies and decided, you know, I love the team at OpenView, like just some of the best people you can work with and just super smart, that I wanted to go learn how to do venture from them. I like their style of of the way they work. So long-winded answer, but uh, that's my journey. So what was attracting you about the angel investment side of things and, and moving into venture? Yeah. So I I thought it was like a a really good way to test the waters. If you've been an operator for a very long time, it can be hard to let go because with your founders, you can't say, hey, we're going to do this thing. You should do it. And now I'm going to help you. Like that's not what happens. You have to just know how to influence versus tell someone to do something. Um, And so that's a very different model from when you're being an operator, right? When you're an operator, you could build a team, you could build a strategy, you go execute. But if your founders don't want to do that, if they don't want to do the thing you think they should do, then you just can't make it happen. And so I wanted to see if I liked the dynamic of being like, okay, here's some money. I'm going to try and give you advice. I'm going to try and introduce you to people that can help you. But at the end of the day, it's your decision. (laughs) Like I'm not in the company doing the work. So that was the first piece. And I also wanted to see if I could split my mind between 20 companies versus just being fully focused on one. Because as you know, when you're in a startup, all you're thinking about is like your customers, your product, like, are we launching? Is this happening? Is that happening? Versus when you're uh, in venture or you're investing or advising, you've got so many different companies that you're thinking about at one time. And you have to prioritize your time across a bunch of companies, which is just a whole different way of working. So it sounds like you've got a through line to the way that you invest, though, and the way you look at companies, and that you're after product-led growth. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why that's so important? Yeah, yeah. So I love, I love products. I love product that makes the the consumer, the developer, the user, whatever you want to call it, so excited to use that product that they tell their friends about it or they share it in some way. It's just it's a it's a different way of creating you know, a network effect, frankly. And it's just something I've always been lucky to have. Like Twilio, people loved our product. I think everyone has a Twilio t-shirt from that era. Um, Parse, like we got so lucky that like people that were building apps on top of Parse loved us so much that they would go tell all their friends about it. They'd tweet about it. They'd go on Hacker News. Like it was just, it just grew itself. And I, at my core, deeply believe, and I had this conversation yesterday with someone else who's building an incredible product, that if you build a really good product and you create something that people can tell you love what you're working on, and you listen to your customers, and you take feedback really well from the people using your product, that your product will grow, right? It's not magic. It it really comes down to listen to your customers and figure out what they want, and then build that thing and build it really, really well. Like, think about product experience. Think about the features they need. And it really makes it easier to grow your company when you have all these advocates using your your product. Is there a secret about how you listen to them? Yeah, so I'm actually writing a giant blog post about this right now. So there's, there's two ways to go about it, right? When you're younger and a smaller company, you're going to be like three founders and maybe like two engineers. Every single person should be talking to customers. I mean, there's probably some version of a sales call that will happen amongst these people. 
Don't be afraid to talk to customers and you have to make it feel safe enough that they can give you negative feedback. You don't ever want to hear like, oh, your product is terrible, but you need to make it okay for someone to say that to you because otherwise you don't get better. So I think the first version of this is when you're a small team, like make sure that everyone is doing support. Everyone's talking to customers. Everyone's joining customer calls here and there and, and sales calls just to really hear what the customer is talking about. And keep an open conversation with your community. When you're a much larger company, it becomes harder to get that product feedback all from sales and maybe developer experience and engineering and Twitter and like all of these places you're seeing product feedback come in funnel directly into the product team. So you have to build a process. Uh, some people hate process. I'm not a huge process fan, but in, in this case, there needs to be someone whose job it is to think about, hey, how does product feedback get back into the product and our development cycle? You always want to make sure if someone, so let's say someone on Hacker News comments like, oh yeah, this is a great product, but if they had this thing, it would be way better. And like 70 people upvote that thing. You want to always be agile enough that someone can say, okay, we're going to work on that, build it and launch it. And then comment back in and say, hey, we did that thing. <laughs> it's the best feeling. Um, so even for big companies, just, just have a process and a person in place who owns developer product feedback or whatever the product is. Make sure it actually makes it into the development cycles. And then when you do that thing, make sure you're announcing it in all the right places. And so this concept of product-led growth, mm -hmm. um, does it replace other kinds of growth? Or you know, are we talking about eliminating salespeople and just aiming to grow the product through kind of this product-led strategy? Yeah. So th there's definitely schools of thought where, you know, you're building a product so good that it sells itself. I'm kind of more a realist on this stuff where I think salespeople are super, super valuable to a company. Um, but I like to think of them more as like customer success. So they, yes, yeah, sure. They're, they're taking meetings with people and talking about the customer's needs and, and, and the things that they want to purchase, but it's less about hey, tell us what you want, we'll build it and then we'll sell it to you. It's more, hey, this product is great. Everyone in your company is using it. We want to make sure that y'all are able to have analytics on the work or I don't know, make sure that your admin access roles are correct. Like the things you need when you're a bigger team on top of great products. And so I think about salespeople as being the person who just makes it easier for large organizations to use a product that everyone loves using. So salespeople are always going to be important when it comes to building a great product and company. Um, so I don't see it as a replacement. I just see it as something that makes their job so much easier. And you ask any salesperson, if you ask a saleswoman, hey, what makes it easier to sell? Is it that this product is so great, everyone wants to use it? Or is it easier to go in and try to sell something no one wants? <laughs> like, it's a pretty, pretty obvious answer. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the salespeople are extremely important. Uh, the customer success for the expansion side of it is, is even more important, um, equally as important. So when you're thinking about this model, just, just realize that there's like the initial person taking the deal, then there's the people who are doing the expansion work. And sometimes it's the same person. And sometimes as you get larger, it splits out. Who's doing this well today? Who should we be looking to as a, as a good model? Yeah. I mean, just looking at like, you know, markets right now, Zoom. Okay. So Zoom is this beautiful product. They replaced a bunch of other products, which were doing an okay job, but everyone knew that there needed to be a better video solution um, for conferencing. And to use Zoom, you have to invite friends. <laughs> like that's what, that you're not going to Zoom by yourself. Right. And so I think Zoom is in a great job of creating a product that sells itself. Um, 
large organizations need to use it. So there, there, there's influencers wanting to use Zoom within the company, but you also have the buyer who's like writing the check, which is who the salesperson will interact with. And they take product feedback really well. Like you'll see people tweet about something wrong with Zoom and their CEO will jump in, right? I'm not saying all CEOs should be on Twitter answering, you know, support questions, but the fact that that person cares that much is such, it's huge. And so, you know, that's a very, very large example of a company, but it's a good one because it's purely product-led growth. They've got a setup that, you know, I'm, everyone's trying to replicate now where, you know, like Slack, for example. Slack is something that you don't want to use Slack by yourself. You want to, you know, it's a great product. You also want to like have friends with you or colleagues with you using Slack. So it, it grows itself based on the way the product, the nature of the product is. And same way, if you give product feedback for Slack, if you're like, hey, I wish there was a new way to do this emoji, they'll build that thing, right? They listen to their community and that's super important. And what about if you have a product which is, it, you know, it doesn't kind of naturally have a networking element to it or, or that kind of network element to it? And it's, you know, I don't know, like an accounting tool or something like that is, would you still encourage people to think network, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I always encourage anyone building anything to think product first. Accountants talk to each other. There are places accountants hang out online, I'm sure, to share, you know, facts and things. I'm not an accountant, so I don't know where they are. But you want to you don't want your accountants to be using technology that just is terrible to use. And so you're seeing a lot of disruption in this space also where there's things coming out that makes jobs like accounting or, you know, what what other I guess back office roles easier and it's simpler to use and is a better product. So absolutely, you can still put product first when thinking through that. And it's, let's say, here's an example. There's an accountant at a company. They love using your product. It's a small company. They leave the company, go elsewhere, misusing that product. They're going to word of mouth say, hey, we should all start using this thing. So there's still some sort of network effect that happens because the product is so good. And just thinking about the terminology with product-led growth versus growth hacking, is there a difference there? What, and if there is, what is the difference? Yeah. So so I don't want to be the one to define anything, but the way I see it, and I'm sure other people see it differently, to me, growth hacking is very specific to, okay, we have this many people signing up, but if we move this button to the left, we have 10 times more people signing up. It's much more mm-hmm. tactical it's much more like, oh, this, uh, if we, in our dashboard underneath roles button, if you see that you can change roles from admin to user, but you have to pay an up fee and then you can charge money for that. Like to me, that's growth hacking. Product led growth to me is much more about just creating a beautiful and um, good product experience for your end user. Therefore, they want to use your product. That paired with a really good growth hacking strategy or a really good growth strategy it is just extremely important. And you've talked about some of the kind of key principles of being product-led, but I know you went through a list in your talk at Sastra. It'd be great if you could kind of talk through some of those principles or, or give us your kind of short list of principles for other businesses kind of or product people to latch onto. Yeah, yeah. Great question. So it's interesting. uh, I keep talking about making a beautiful product, but a lot of the times when I say beautiful, I'm actually excited about usability and making your product really easy to use for the end user and also easy to get started is something that, you know, you have no idea how many times I've seen people try to start using a product, not be able to figure out and then never come back to the website. So that's a a big um, for product-led growth strategy. 
the simple to get started piece is just, I don't want to have to talk to seven people. I don't want to have to have a, have to have a consultant come on site. Um, you don't want to have to give a credit card in some cases, just like make it dead simple to get started using your product. And I've seen a lot of cases lately where a product needs to have data, for example, coming in from your data warehouses to be useful. That's fine. They're not going to get started that way. Create some sort of dashboard environment for the the new users to see the power of what can actually be using this product and then get them to do the, the, the giant data lock-in piece. Freemium to paid. I've heard a lot of back and forth on freemium lately. Uh, I still think there's value in giving a free tier as an on-ramp to your paid solution. As long as you understand that some of your free users will never pay you ever, but they will be your influencers and they'll influence your um, paid users in some ways with it from within a company or either you know, social media or Stack Overflow, whatever it might be, to check your product out. And then those users might convert to paid. Um, another one I think was, it was talking about focusing on the user first. If everyone's ever worked at um, a big company, you get software kind of just put in front of you and you don't have a choice to use it or not. And that's kind of changing because users are rebelling <laughs> in a great way. And so you really have to think about your user. Like you really have to understand, like, does this user enjoy using this piece of software that's been purchased for them or procured for them by IT? And if the answer is no, then your product's going to be replaced by someone who has really thought about the end user. A great example of this is Expensify. Expense reports are my least favorite thing to do, but Expensify has made it such that I just take a photo, it uploads, it does some magic in the background, and then bam, my expense report is done. And it's a pretty UI. The users are happy. Accounting is happy. Um, and it's replacing all the older legacy solutions for expense reporting. And so it, it really is important to focus on your user. And then I actually just wrote a blog post and launched it today about the network effects. Think about how you can create network effects within your product, whether it's a Slack style where like you don't want it to be on Slack by yourself. Is it whenever you're signing up, you have the option to invite your team? Is it like Calendly, which, you know, when you actually send a Calendly link, everyone's like, oh, aha, I don't have to do that weird back and forth thing with calendars. You know, it's actually a way to show the value as a user to everyone else you're sending it to. But really think about from a strategy standpoint, what is your way of creating a network effect for your product and, and to get that exponential growth going? And do you think there's any exceptions with businesses that shouldn't be or can't be product led? Oh man, of course. There's always exceptions to every rule, right? Um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of some off the top of my head and I can't. But I mean, I'm sure there's some sort of software that is, you know, deep in some procurement process that just has to be the way that it is. And I'm sure it'll change at some point. But right now, there's always going to be something that can't be product led, I guess. But the world is moving towards creating great products, easy to use, focusing on the user. So while right now there may not be, it may not be the perfect fit for everyone. I think over the next 10 years, we'll start to see that most products are created so that the user enjoys using them. The danger for some companies is going to be taking this advice and saying, right, if the user said it, the user wants it and we have to do it. But there's a lot of different users and a lot of different cases. And being able to prioritize what is actually valuable feedback from the user versus stuff that might get in the way and uh, compete with your strategy. How do you 
distinguish between those two things? Yeah, absolutely. I, I see this all the time. Um, it's interesting that you need to have a, you don't want your product strategy driven solely by your users. You don't want to just be like, you know what our strategy is. We're going to put a, a Reddit style board on the internet. Everyone's going to upfoot what they want next. And then we're going to just build it. I mean, that'll work for a while, but at some point you have to have a much bigger strategy of like, what is this company? What's our goal for the next year? What's our goal for the next five years? What's our goal for the next 10 years? Like what do we want to be? And then you can categorize the feedback into this directly aligns with our vision this might align with our vision if we sort of go a different way or expand our view a little bit. And this will never, ever, you know, be within our vision. And I think it's okay to say that. Like, I think it's okay to tell users, like, I hear what you want, but this isn't something that actually feeds to our core product and our greater audience. You know, customers, users, community, they, they value openness. And so it's okay just to say, hey, this doesn't make sense for where we're going. So aside from having just generally a better product, what are the other side effects of having a, a successfully product-led business? Yeah, so so OpenView does a product-led growth index, I think yearly or quarterly, and we're always updating that to kind of answer from a numeric standpoint what we think happens to these companies that are following a product-led growth strategy. And so for context, it's like Atlassian, Shopify, Dropbox, DocuSign, Twilio, a lot of companies we've all heard of, and then we know their products are good. And what we're seeing is they're growing at about, you know, they're, they're higher multiples of, of enterprise value to revenue. So about 10x versus with just SaaS without a product-led growth strategy is about 7.7x. And again, that's enterprise value to revenue. And then we're seeing that they're making on average per dollar 5224 uh, over the the SaaS index, I mean we've we've kind of put down as two thousand three hundred and four, which is, makes the value of the company if we were gonna you know not get acquired or sell it or IPO or whatever it looks like to be about two times more valuable because they're growing more efficiently. And and if you want to learn more about the product led growth index and the way we think about the numbers and the multiples and the values, uh, you can just really go to Google <laughs> and search for OpenView product led growth index, and we have an entire page and workshop and everything that pulls everything up. So the thought, the thesis is that if you build a better product and your users love using your product, your network effects are much stronger. It's driving acquisition, retention, and expansion. Uh, it's also increasing the value of your company. You're talking mostly about startups and SaaS businesses. Does this apply also to enterprise and legacy businesses? Can you transform from where you are to taking advantage of this product-led growth strategy? Yeah. So a lot of these, obviously, like you said, are startups that have grown into being giant enterprise businesses. Um, most of them are, are actually, I think all of them on these, this is are public companies. I do think there's a world in which the legacy solutions and legacy businesses start to realize this is happening. And, and I think it's already happening where they try to make their solution and their, and their product much more easier to use and start listening to their users. Do I think it's going to work? as well as this is when you're starting from scratch, I'm not sure. I do think there will be improvement. Um, every day I talk to a startup and they're going against some legacy solution, um, you know, whatever it might be. And their main selling point is our product is better. I'm like, yes, your product is better. But like, what if they get a really strong engineering product, go to market team in there and, and, and recreate, you know, that magic and, and make a good product? It's possible. You just don't see it very often. 
big businesses move slowly in a lot of cases and businesses that have been around for 20 or 30 years move even more slowly. (laughs) Um, So even if they're able to turn the ship around, we wouldn't see the innovation for quite a while. And by then someone else has already like, you know, eaten their lunch. And kind of on that point of how businesses can be more successful or make a difference, you've obviously worked with a lot of great companies Mm -hmm. and kind of up and coming businesses what is it that you see in these businesses that makes them great besides product like growth strategies? Is there other things that you look for in a business? Yeah, I'll tell you what I look for when I'm talking to founders of small companies. I love getting to know founders and getting to know what drives them. Um, That's been something that time over time I've been able to see, oh, I I see why this person wants to build a business. So um, founders are big for me. Um, I also am curious, like, is there a market here? Are we, are we trying to create something that no one wants? Like, that's always important. Like, is there a market for this? I love Mm -hmm. companies that are creating a category versus just trying to come in and replace some old thing. Like, I mean, Zoom obviously is a great job of replacing an old thing, uh, and extremely impressed with what they've done. But I do like the idea of creating a category. Um, Twilio was creating a category, right? Parse was creating a category. So it's just something that is close to my heart. And I think the other thing that's extremely important is when you're talking to founders and when you're talking to people that work at these companies is do they understand how valuable their their community is and helping them to grow as a, as a product and as a company. And so a deep love for customers is so, so important. Um, and, and I've always been fortunate to work at companies where the customer is like, we care so deeply about making their lives easier in some way. And so I really look for companies and founders that do the same. Awesome. Ashley, thank you so much. That was a great point. And um, it feels like a great kind of ending point for the podcast. So, uh, but yeah, it's been really good having you. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. So good to be here. Thank you so much. Hey, lovely people. We only got a handful of requests for more outros from our thousands of listeners. So this might just be the last outro you ever hear from us. That is right. And so sad. So shout if you want more or if you don't. No, don't, don't. Definitely don't. Then we can stop recording this part. But what I would like is someone to heckle our outros, you know, like uh, Statler and Waldorf in The Muppet Show heckling Fozzie Bear. But like in this section or like on social media? Yeah, on the Twitters would probably work better. I don't really need someone stalking me while I'm recording this. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Our hosts are me, that's Lily Smith, and Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast. Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music. And sign up for your local Product Tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one somewhere near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's Global Coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product Tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment 
for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.